6.30 on the dot. Good afternoon. <clears throat> For those of you that's first time here, welcome. We do this every Tuesday. Bruce Chris provides the food and I do the teaching and you do everything else. Um, the food is always free and we just ask that you please leave a tip, a donation in this little box here. That goes straight to the kitchen staff to make this food. So I don't get any of it. Bruce Chris doesn't get any of it. But the people that serve you get so tip accordingly how much you think it's worth or more. We're in the book of Exodus. We've been studying the book. We've been going through it chapter by chapter. We passed the halfway point. And this week we're starting in chapter 21. We're actually at the tail end of chapter 20. Last week in chapter 20, we looked at, we spent two weeks looking at the famous Ten Commandments passage. Um, we looked at some of the ways that the commandments have been interpreted, some of the ways that they've been extrapolated, some of the ways they've been kind of uh, misinterpreted. But the purpose of the Ten Commandments was not a, a total, uh, uh, not a full treatment of what God wanted. The Ten Commandments were the beginning of the covenant, the book of the covenant. And that's really important to keep in mind because the, the book of the covenant is a lot more than just Ten Commandments. It's everything that's coming after Exodus chapter 20. We're beginning in this section that's Exodus 21 through 23. And Moses will actually refer to it as the book of the covenant later in uh, Deuteronomy. But this is the beginning. This is the, so you have these concentric rings. So you have the Ten Commandments, which were like the moral center of Israel's law. And then the next ring out are the, the, is the book of the covenant, which is an expansion of the Ten Commandments into case law into particular situations and they cover all aspects of life they they everything from agricultural rules to um, to capital punishment cases to treatment among family members all of these aspects of society and then after that there's going to be some more narrative there's going to be some worship regulations and then later in leviticus and in numbers and deuteronomy they'll be expanded even more to wider ranging things and more significant or excuse me more specific aspects so everything from like how you should sow your field what kind of garments you should wear what kind of foods you can eat what you can't eat so the covenant kind of flows out you have the ten commandments which is the center then an expansion of that which is the book of the covenant and then the rest of it which kind of builds on that so it's crucial when you read exodus and you read the book the law portions of the old testament this is Something that I've come to realize over the past 10, 15 years of teaching the Bible professionally is that Christians don't know how to interpret the law. We just don't. We don't know how to read the law and how to see it holistically. What we do is we listen to a preacher and he's got 30 minutes, if he's, you know, sometimes an hour, but usually 15 to 30 minutes on a Sunday to preach one passage or a couple of passages. And we don't ever see the whole of the law. We don't ever lay it out in its fullness and its in its systematic nature. So what you end up with is called proof texting. Proof texting is the um, scourge of biblical interpretation. Proof texting is when you take up say when you say, okay, what does the Bible say about blank? Turn to a passage. Oh, this is what it says about blank. And then you just say that as if that's all the Bible says about it, or as if that's a axiomatic truth for all times. Whenever you're studying scripture, you don't ever want to say, well, what does Bob say about blank and stop at individual verses? Because like we've said before so many times, the verses weren't original to the Bible. Chapter numbers weren't original to the Bible. They were written as a whole. So if you want to say, like we'll talk about in a minute, what does the Bible say about slavery? 
you don't go and look up slavery on a concordance program and just print out all the verses that mention slavery. That's not how it works. What you do is you read the whole of the text and you see the trajectory that scripture paints and the path that it takes the reader on and you get a full idea of what the Bible says about slavery or any issue. It can be whatever issue you want to discuss. It's important to get out of that isolated, segmented way of looking at the law because these weren't laws like our modern laws. Um, who's a lawyer in here? Anybody? Or are you ashamed to say you're a lawyer? <laughs> so, um, anybody go to law school? Okay, so when you go to law school, you realize there's a lot of reading you have to do, and there's a lot of case law and precedents. And our law in American society, it tends to be exhaustive. So in American society, if it's not specifically deemed to be illegal, then it's legal. And you can find loopholes, and you can have mistrials, and you can find all of these ways around the spirit of the laws through knowing the law and being able to exploit it. Well, ancient law didn't work that way. Ancient law was not exhaustive. It was, it was situational or it was uh, exemplary. So an ancient law would say, here is the law. Here's an example of how that law works in this situation. And then the judges and the society were expected to extrapolate from that and to, and to apply that in different situations that the law specifically didn't mention, but that were applicable. And that's how Israelite judges rule. That's why there's such an emphasis in the Old Testament on judges being uh, non-bribable, being upright, having a passion for justice and for truth, not being corrupt. Because the judges were determining, they were taking God's law, and then they were applying it in ways where the spirit of the law fit, even if the letter of the law didn't fit exactly. So when we read the Old Testament, we'll see these examples of these laws, and they seem so really specific. I mean, very specific. And you're like, well, how often would that happen? Well, sometimes, I mean, obviously enough to become a law, but that would also be paradigmatic for how it should be uh, how other situations should be addressed as well. So in reading the law, it's so important to realize just what we're reading, what we're seeing. We're seeing God setting up a society to mirror his values and his desires for society for the purpose of, remember it's all for the purpose of, being a light to the nations, being a kingdom of priests, being the people who draw the nations into a relationship with God. And God did this. He gave this law in the 1400s B.C. He gave this law in the second millennium, ancient Near East. So he was not giving this law to 21st century North Americans. This law is not given to post-scientific, post-enlightenment democracies that are secular. The law was given into a world where cultures had certain societal norms. And what you see is the law goes into those cultures to pull those cultures along the trajectory that God wants the whole world to go through. The law as it was given is not the law as it was ultimately or finally intended for all society. That's another problem with Christians that try to take a, let's just go back and keep all the Old Testament laws and everything will be perfect. It won't. It can't. You can't keep the Old Testament laws. There's no temple anymore. There's no Levitical priesthood anymore. It's, it's pointless to try to say, well, we just got to go back and enact these laws. You can't do it. They were given to covenant Israel in covenant with God under the Mosaic uh, era 
within the world of the ancient Near East. So you can't just try to apply them to societies uh, in a pick and choose manner. You have to take the whole law or none of it. That's what the New Testament basically says. And in the new covenant that we're in now, you have to take it and filter it through the fact that we are now in the new covenant, the Messianic age. That has a huge significance. In fact, the whole New Testament arguably is an outpouring of how do you keep God's new covenant law in this new setting without jettisoning or abandoning everything that's come before. And Paul in particular wrestles with that, as does Peter, as does the author of Hebrews. But we're not even close to that yet. We're still back in understanding what it is in its original setting. That's the first task. Preachers want to jump ahead and get you to the New Testament, but that doesn't work if you don't know the Old Testament already. So what we want to do is familiarize with what's going on here, then you can extrapolate later. Um, one more point to make is the Old Testament, what we're about to get into, the covenant. This is the, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Sometimes we'll hear it called that. It was not intended to be God's perfect ideal. We know that it wasn't intended to be God's perfect ideal because Jesus himself said so. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is being questioned about the law and about a potential loophole that can be kept. And uh, Jesus flat out says, hey, Moses allowed you to do some things because of the hardness of your hearts. But that's not what God intended from the beginning. And in the context, Jesus is talking about divorce. And he's saying that the, the, the Torah, the covenant, the Sinai covenant, allowed for divorce in certain cases, X, Y, Z. And he's saying to his listeners, that wasn't God's plan from the beginning, though. That was just put in place because of your hardness of heart and your sinfulness. The law, the Sinai covenant, takes into effect the sinfulness of the people that it's being given to. And it doesn't always uh, legislate the ideal. Paul will talk about this in Galatians 3. He'll talk about it in Romans 7, that the law was given, the Mosaic covenant, what we're reading, was given to Israel as a temporary, Paul uses the term schoolmaster sometimes, or, 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 or a pedagogos is the Greek term. It means someone who makes sure you go to school and makes sure you do your lessons and watches over you and guards you. And, 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 but for a kid, until the child grows up. And so Paul sees the law as to get Israel through its adolescence until it grows up into the Messiah. So what we want to realize is even when we're reading the law and when we read Psalm 119 and you talk about, you know, it's the longest chapter in the Bible and it's all about praising the law. The law was good and wonderful and perfect for what it was supposed to do, but it does not reflect God's ultimate ideal. To see God's ultimate ideal, you have to trace the trajectory of ethics all the way through from Genesis all the way to Revelation to see where God's pulling the world, to see where God's leading the nations. So beware when people start reading the law and just trying to um, either denigrate it and say, oh, well, this shows that God can't be a moral God because what kind of God would allow this? Or when people try to say, oh, well, this is the perfect law, and if we just follow this, everything would be perfect. Both of those are wrong. You have to see the law in its covenant context. And so we begin actually in chapter 20, the tail end of chapter 20, after the Ten Commandments, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gold. And that's a summary of the first two commandments. And he's basically saying, 
You've seen that I've just talked to you from heaven out loud and given you these ten. The Ten Commandments were spoken out loud to Israel. All the people heard the Ten Commandments, and they were very fearful. Um, that they, they heard the voice of God. So he says, do not make any gods alongside me. Do not make for yourselves uh, gods of silver or gold. And then verse 24, give a note about worship before he then gives into the laws. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones or, or fancy carved, intricately carved stones. For you'll defile it if you use a tool on it. Do not go up on my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. All right, so that's just kind of a weird little throwaway line that a lot of people don't preach on. What God's saying in this one is, hey, you're going to worship me, but you're going to do it on my terms. You're not going to do it like they did in Egypt. You're not going to do it like they do in Canaan. You're not going to do it like they do in Babylon, Assyria, Samaria, any of those places. In those places, to get to the gods, you built a, an elevated altar. The higher up you were, the closer you were to the gods. That's why Israel later, the prophets will say, you go and you worship at the high places. Anywhere where I can build, you know, the higher I get, the closer I am to the Lord. Um, so you would do that. And God's saying, you're not going to have all that. The more intricate your altar was, the more likely God would hear your prayers and accept your sacrifices. God says, you're not going to do that. If you want to make an altar to me, just regular stones. Don't carve it. Don't anything. Just pile them up, just like your forefathers did. I'll accept that offering there. And the last one is... Um, in the ancient world, the priest, a lot of times very elaborate, would go up on the altar and you know, wear robes, no underwear. Everybody's going to get a view. Uh, and that was designed intentionally because in the ancient world, in Egypt, but particularly in Canaan, worship was inherently sexual. It was inherently an act of sexual excitement. The whole purpose of the gods of the Canaanites were fertility gods. Baal was the god of the storm. The storm was seen as Baal's orgasm. That was when Baal released his seed, quote, into the earth and impregnated the earth, the goddess Asherah. Asherah would become pregnant and would give birth to the crops. So if you want to get Baal all hot and bothered and ready to send down the rain so you can have some crops, you would entice him. And you would do it through ritual prostitution, through temple prostitutes, through the priests. And it's just sexuality was all intertwined with pagan worship. And so right here at the beginning, God's distancing his worship from that. And saying, that is not in any way, shape, or form how you're going to get my attention. And it's not how you're going to, to get the people to worship. It's not we're going to divorce. Now, God doesn't divorce sexuality from spirituality. He divorces sexuality from corporate worship or from um, sacrificial worth. All right? Sex will be seen as in the realm of intimacy, not in the realm of trying to get God to do stuff for you. As it was in the pagan world. So that's just a quick aside, and then he goes into now, verse chapter 21. These are the laws you are to set before them. Hamishpatim uh, in Hebrew, the mishpot, the, the, the judgments. These are the judgments. These are the rulings that you're to set before them. That's what mishpat means, is a ruling. Verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free alone. If he has a wife when he comes, she's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. Now, already we've stepped into a minefield of interpretation. Already. 
There's so many things going on here. First of all, what is, some of your translations say slave. NIV said Hebrew servant. Some says slave. Which is correct? The answer is both. The Hebrew word is evid. Evid. E-B-E-D. Evid. That means worker, slave, servant, employee, worshiper. It has all of those meanings. Remember how all throughout Exodus it's been you were serving Pharaoh, but now God is freeing you to serve him? That's the word, Ebed, that's been a wordplay throughout the entire book of Exodus. The whole theme of Exodus is freedom from slavery for the Ebed, for the ones who serve, for the slaves. Israel is a nation of Ebed. So God is now moving into, okay, now we're in a world where there are servants, there are slaves, there are, but we don't have a good English word for it. If I say servant, you're going to think of like Vincent or whatever show you watched growing up, Mr. Belvedere or whatever, where it's just like a button. And that's not the right wording. But if I say slave, you're going to think of Roots. You're going to think of Kunta Kinte. You're going to think of Amistad. You're going to think of all the horrible slave notions. And that's not what it is either. So the interpreter's in the dilemma here in English because we don't have a terminology that encompasses this. So let me read from, this is uh, from Doug Stewart in his commentary on Exodus. He has a little excursus on slavery. And I want to read from this to set the stage for what's going on, these laws that we're going to be reading this week and next week. This is from uh, his, his Exodus commentary. It says, the various Hebrew terms translated by terms such as servant, slave, maidservant, occur more than a thousand times in the Old Testament. The present passage, Exodus 21, reflects the broad semantic range encompassed by these terms and the concepts to which they refer. Although the laws in Exodus 21, 1 through 11 address primarily the circumstances of six-year contract servants, they do not implicitly distinguish among categories of employees. The most common vocabulary word used for the servant is evid, which can mean worker, employee, servant, or slave. Anyone in any of these categories came under the protection of Yahweh's covenant law. The laws of this section also do not differentiate types of employers. The standard term used here is ba'ah. It can mean boss, employer, master, or owner. It's also the word for husband. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Similarly, oh, it's the word veil, by the way, ba'ah. It, it also means veil. That's, that's the word. Similarly, the words translated as buy, B-U-I, in 21.2 uh, and sell in 21.7 and 8 can refer to any financial transaction related to a contract. Much as in modern sports terminology, a player can be described as being bought or sold from one team to another. Players are not actually the property of the team that, quote, owns them, except as regards the exclusive right to their employment as players of that sport. Much misunderstanding of Israelite law has arisen from the failure to appreciate the analogous distinction that prevailed in ancient Israel. When the law was properly followed, persons who were servants, slaves, workers, employees, held their positions by reason of a formal contract that related primarily today. In addition, some of the misunderstanding of biblical laws on service slavery arises from unconscious analogy to modern Western Hemisphere slavery, which involved the stealing of people of a different race from their homelands, 
transporting them in chains to a new land, selling them to an owner who possessed them for life without any obligation to any restrictions, and who could resell them to someone else. Whether one translates Ebed as servant, slave, employee, or worker, it's clear that the biblical law allowed for no such practices in Israel. Indeed, the law reflects the fact that when obediently practiced by the boss, employer, owner, and the servant, slave, employer, worker alike, Israelite service could be so beneficial to a worker that he or she would choose to enlist for a lifetime with the same employer. You'll see that in verses 5 and 6. So there were different categories of this Ebed. There were foreign Ebeds whose lives were spared in war and who were allowed to live infinitely on the condition that they became permanent workers in Israel. There were six-year servants who contracted to work for an employer for six years in return for wages and other benefits. There were servants born in the boss's household who owed the boss something for the housing and the food he had provided them until such a time as they might choose to leave his property. There were various sorts of temporary employees and permanent employees who may have worked or given individual under various sorts of arrangements, including day laboring. We should note also that virtually all industry in ancient times was household or cottage industry. Corporations or business partnerships as we know them in modern times did not exist. Almost all business was small business in the sense of family-owned and family-operated business. And someone who in any sense an employee, not the owner of his own business, worked for the head of a family, usually lived with or near that family on its property and was paid according to a formal written or verbal contract that was somewhat more like the terms of enlistment used to enroll someone into military service today than a casual agreement expecting only certain hours to be worked in a place of employment. Finally, Israel's service slavery laws should be understood in terms of their own history of slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians made the Israelites slaves on the basis of their ethnicity, forced them to serve as slaves for life, did not compensate them properly, if at all, and worked them unbearably hard as a means of keeping them weak and or causing at least some to die under the burden of their slavery. Against this sort of historical experience, the Bible's laws protect all sorts of workers guaranteeing them the right to gain their freedom after a set period of time as against the Egyptian practice of permanently enslaving Israel. Biblical law also gave immediate freedom to those who had in any way been physically abused, as opposed to the severe abuse the Egyptians had imposed upon the Israelites. God's laws implicitly condemned the Egyptian treatment of the Israelites as illegal by prohibiting the very practices the Egyptians had used to suppress and weaken God's people in Egypt. Now that's on the video here, and it'll be on the podcast if you want to go back and re-listen so you can catch what Stuart was saying. What he's saying is that the words slavery are not what's going on in the Bible. When we think of slavery, we, we, we are poisoned by our history as a nation. And so that automatically we think of all of the types of slavery that the Bible itself condemns. Here's the thing. All of those you hear all the time, Christians use the Bible to support slavery. And they were wrong. They were flat out wrong. All of the Christian theologians in the South and in Great Britain during the slave trade who used the Bible to support slavery had to ignore the Bible to support their slavery that they wanted. And they did because, for instance, in this passage that talks about Evid, slave servants, everyone translated, verse, look at verse 16 of chapter 21. Look at verse 16. I want you to see this very clearly. This is one of those gotcha passages, chapters that atheists or skeptics or people that don't like the Bible, they want to throw in your face. Oh, you think of God 
could be like this. If he, look at what he says in verse 16. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps another and sells him, if he's caught, even if, and this doesn't just, the NIV is a little bit interpretive here. The Hebrew term in analogy is anyone who kidnaps or sells a person, if they're caught, is put to death. Slave trading was a capital offense in Israel. How many people knew that? It doesn't get, it doesn't get spoken of very often. When people want to attack the Bible as views on slavery, they don't quote this passage. Right? This undermines the entire transatlantic slave trade. Every slave trader who ever shipped black people across the Middle Passage would have been put to death under Israelite law. That's interesting, isn't it? The Bible doesn't sound very pro-slavery in that regard. Furthermore, jump down and look at um, verse 26. If a man hits a, maid, a manservant or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. This is the first, well, the verse right before it actually is the first eye for an eye, famous eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth passage. And we'll talk about that more next week because we don't have time this week. Um, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is not about revenge. Most New Testament Christians just think, oh, what's the bad thing you're not supposed to do because Jesus said, love your enemy. What Jesus was correcting was the twisting of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is the passage of the chapter where it comes from. It's called the Lex Talionis, the law of retaliation. And in the ancient world, this is how it worked. You killed my son, unintentionally or not, doesn't matter, I get to kill your son and your entire family. That's how ancient law works. You knocked out my tooth, I get to slaughter your village. That's how ancient law worked. That's how these blood feuds started. That's how it was. You hurt me, I'm hurting you worse. That was just how it was. What the Lex Talionis says, what the eye for eye, tooth for tooth says, comes along and God says, no, 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 no. The punishment will fit the crime. If you knock somebody's tooth out, they can't kill you in return. But they can knock your tooth out. The punishment should fit the crime. That's what eye for eye, tooth for tooth means. It was to limit violence, not to encourage it. We read it today in, in a completely different legal setting, and we think it sounds odd, so barbaric. It was to limit the punishment. Also, the rabbis, if you look at Jewish tradition, it was never read as literal. It was always understood, interpreted as a figure of speech. The punishment fits the crime. If somebody had their eye you know, injured in a fight and they went blind or whatever, the judges didn't hold down the other guy and somebody come along and, you know, it was basically, all right, the worth of that eye, the value, the punishment has to fit that value. And so it was a way of keeping people, it, it was a way of keeping it that justice had to be uh, uniform. Justice had to be, you couldn't just say, oh, you hurt me a little, I'm going to destroy you and humiliate you. And that will show you anybody else, that will keep anybody else from stepping up to it. It was like that, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, in, when it came to servants, to Evans, it's really interesting here because that's the only time where it's, it's 
Well, that, not the only time, but that's a specific time where we see that it's not literal. It says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The servant who's injured by the master goes free. That was another thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot in discussions of biblical slavery. If, if masters uh, discipline their servant through, they usually use little rods or whips or canes or little things. It's, you know, it, a totally different world than we live in today. But it's still in a lot of parts of the world. The more socially superior someone is or the more authoritative they are, they can swap people and smack people. And whether it's kids, whether it's servants, whether it's employees, you see it all over the place. Um, in fact, I saw a funny Indian video where a guy was camera guy and he was about to give an interview and one of his assistants walking away and he was like, just like popped him in the head. The guy's like, oh, sorry. Uh, it's just really weird. You know, we, a person would get sued out of business in America, but not in the rest of the world. The point is, though, there was, what scripture did was it put a limit on that. And it says, if you injure your servant, they're free. So you better be really careful. You better take into account the fact, if I get angry and I raise the whip or if I raise the rod or if I raise my hand or whatever, if there's injury, they're out of here. They're free. I lose this person. I lose their employment. I lose their service. That's built into the law. So again, the whole, uh, it, it undermines the entire concept that we have of colonial slave trade. It, this type of stuff, you know, the, the, the welts that you see on the backs of slaves that were beaten, that meant freedom in the biblical law. You know, the, the, if, if you injure, so we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more, but I'm, I'm wanting to set the stage because when we're reading this text, when we start the book of the covenant, we're reading so far into another culture that it's so hard for us to put ourselves in that culture. We're sitting here at Ruth's preaching Chris in South Park. <laughs> You don't get more posh than where we are right now. You could not be more alienated from ancient Near East Hebrew setting if you try. So what I'm trying to do is to, 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 to see all of the ways that it's totally different, but yet that it's not what people normally think of when they think of these ancient times and, and the barbaric nature and everything like that. So when you're thinking, when you're reading these laws, and I'm going to use the word servant, although I don't like it. I'd rather use worker, and I'm going to use worker, because worker has a more, the word evid means to work, means to do work. So worker to me is a better uh, translation than servant or slave. Uh, slave is too harsh, servant is too light. So I like worker because it also brings out the fact that this was a contractual arrangement in the ancient world. So you couldn't kidnap somebody. How did people become slaves? They were debt slaves. You sold yourself as a worker. You, you contracted yourself to a household as their evidence, and that meant that your costs were taken care of. So if you had a family and you couldn't feed them, you would contract either yourself or your children to, to enter into their service. The military example is a good one to me because if, if anybody served in the military, so you know when you serve, you don't get to pick and choose what you're going to do, right? You do what you're ordered to do. In that regards, military service is a form of slavery. You go where they say go, you sleep when they say sleep, you eat what they say eat, you don't get a vote, you don't get, you have your own separate court if you break their laws. It's a, in many ways, it's a comparable example, but you do it voluntarily. You enter into it voluntarily, or if you're drafted, not voluntarily, but these days at least you enter into it voluntarily. So there's an aspect 
of slavery in modern military service, but it's a voluntary service for a set period of time, or you can choose to do it for life. If you want to re-enlist and re-enlist and, and, and don't get kicked out or discharged, you can become a career military person. Well, there's going to be the very next law in this section is going to be if somebody wants to become a career EBIT, if they want to become a permanent member of the household. Servants, EBITs were seen as members of the household. Remember back in Genesis when Abraham is saying, oh, I don't have any children, and Eliezer of Damascus will inherit my estate? Eliezer of Damascus was his EBIT. Servants could have inheritance rights. This is all of this complicated situation. Again, it's so different than anything that we know of, but we just don't have enough time to go into it this week. So come back next week and we'll pick it up and we'll look a little bit more in chapter 21. But we're over time, so go. Get, go to your work. Workers.